This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Infertility can be related to factors in the male, female, or both. Whatever the reason for the infertility, it can put a major strain on the couple's relationship. And to add to this stress, it frequently results in numerous exams, tests, injections, and procedures for one or sometimes even both of the couple. Fortunately, the cause of the infertility can often be found, and in some cases, treatment is effective, resulting in a successful pregnancy and birth. Today, if you haven't guessed, our topic for discussion is infertility, and since this is such a large topic, we're going to limit our discussion to infertility in females. Our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Stewart, a physician in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility. Ebby, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's such an important topic and um, often not spoken about, so we appreciate the opportunity. Well, it is an important topic, and I always enjoy topics that I know very little about, and being a geriatrician, infertility rarely comes up in my area, so I had to do a fair amount of reading about this, and I found it very fascinating. So let's start by asking you to give the definition of infertility. Well, I think the first thing I would say is that infertility is a disease. Again, some people think it's a social issue or maybe a problem, but it's clear that all of the health organizations from the World Health Organization to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine make it clear that infertility is a disease. And it's defined as the inability to conceive a pregnancy after a year's worth of trying for couples where the woman is 35 or younger and the time frame is changed to six months if the woman is over 35. So being an OB-GYN, I imagine you deal with female issues related to infertility, but males can have issues as well. So what's the percentage of infertility related to females, males, or occasionally both, I guess, right? Yeah. Well, the rule of thumb is about a third of the cases that are identified have a female cause, about a third of the time we identify a male cause, and about the a third of the time, either we have a factor identified in both people, or sometimes we've gone through all the testing and there's no cause identified. And for couples, that's actually the most frustrating to be defined to have unexplained infertility is really difficult because they want something that can be fixed. And to be reassured that all the testing is normal is not reassuring. Sure, I can understand that. So how common is this? What percentage of couples actually have a problem with infertility? In general, it's about 10 to 12% of all couples. Again, there is a question about whether or not the diagnosis of infertility is increasing with time. And it may be because more couples may be seeking care. The other big factor we have to think about is that as couples 
attempt pregnancies as they're older, that they may have more factors that play a role. And also the, the time pressure to conceive is different when you're 35 and you're first starting than if you're starting when you're 21. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned age. As I was reading, looks like age does affect one's fertility. And I think nowadays couples are waiting longer to start having children. So I imagine you're seeing more of this as our population ages. Is that right? Yeah, no, definitely. Age is a very powerful predictor of fertility in both men and women. But the uh, time frame that it seems to impact them is somewhat different that in general, women are impacted with age-related fertility problems when they're between 35 and 40. For men, it's often more in the range of 50 to 60. And the other thing that has changed markedly is that people have been able to use good contraception for many years. So again, Many couples in our grandparents' era didn't have good contraception, so they may not have really been trying for pregnancy, but achieved a pregnancy anyway. But now that couples can uh, use contraception while they get their career established or go back to school, that when they want to get pregnant, the urgency of time becomes more important. You mentioned contraceptives. Does the long-term use of oral contraceptives increase the risk of future infertility? No, and actually that's one of the big myths. Actually using contraception when you're not trying to get pregnant actually helps preserve fertility. So it protects against sexually transmitted infections and that there can be a perception that you stopped birth control pills and maybe your periods are irregular. But many women are often on birth control pills for 10 or even 20 years before they try to get pregnant. And sometimes those pills were started because they had irregular periods to begin with. So women worry about that a lot. But actually, the data support the fact that using contraception when you're not trying to get pregnant helps preserve your fertility. You mentioned age being one risk factor for infertility in women. What are some other risk factors? In general, that we worry about problems related to ovulation, and that's often indicated by irregular periods. So women that have irregular periods may be more likely to be at risk for fertility problems. Any type of problem that could affect the uterus or the fallopian tubes is also associated with increased infertility. So things like having a history of a sexually transmitted infection, like chlamydia or gonorrhea, having had multiple abdominal surgeries that could lead to scar tissue, and then also uterine problems like uterine fibroids can impact fertility as well. So hearing some of those risk factors, I can see how some women may not have a problem with fertility initially, but develop some issue that makes them infertile later in life. Is that correct? Right. Uh, So again, sometimes we talk about primary infertility and secondary infertility. So some women have difficulty getting pregnant from when they begin to try. Other women may successfully have a pregnancy or two or even several children. And then when they come in to have another pregnancy, they run into problems. So 
things like uterine fibroids increase with increasing age and having a successful pregnancy in your 20s doesn't necessarily mean that you might not have problems in your 30s or 40s with another pregnancy. Sure. Okay. Is there a genetic component to this? There are rarely genetic problems that relate to fertility, but that's not a major component of infertility. That rare things like having a balanced chromosomal translocation can increase a woman's risk of having recurrent pregnancy loss, or there are rare genetic problems that predispose women to lose their ovarian function at an earlier age. So there can be genetic issues, but they're pretty rare. Okay. So when you're doing an evaluation on a female, how often is a cause found and versus telling them, you know, everything looks fine. We can't find a specific cause. So again, the rule of thumb is about a third of the time we can identify a female cause of fertility, about a third of the time we identify a male cause. And that's why I think it's important that even if we're focusing on female infertility today, we can't forget to do a semen analysis on the partner, that just because you have irregular periods from polycystic ovarian syndrome or uterine fibroids that may be impacting your uterus doesn't mean that your partner might also have a low sperm count. So uh, looking at that is important. And then again, maybe 20% of people go through all the testing and all of the tests are normal, that it's very hard to dissect down to absolutely positively, this is the one cause for infertility. So mm-hmm. many couples have what we call unexplained infertility. So you've already mentioned some of the causes of infertility in females. What are the most common causes that you end up finding? So the most common causes are related to problems of ovulation. And the most common problem with ovulation in women is polycystic ovarian syndrome, which affects about 10% of all women. PCOS tends to produce problems where women either rarely ovulate or don't predictably ovulate. And again, knowing when you ovulate optimizes your chance of pregnancy, given the busy lives that many couples have, that if you know you're ovulating this weekend, you can make time to be together and have intercourse. Whereas other couples where there's no idea whether you're going to ovulate this weekend or next weekend or the following weekend, it makes it more difficult. Mm -hmm. So before I ask you what evaluation you perform, since the majority of our listeners are primary care providers, what kind of an evaluation could we be expected to perform before we end up referring them to uh, OBGYN or person like you? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I think most couples can go through an initial evaluation of infertility. And again, I think the first thing is to take a history and try to figure out what you believe is the most likely cause uh, that certainly you're going to look more in depth at the uterus if the woman has had two prior fibroid surgeries and you're going to look more closely at ovulation if it's been six months and she's had a period. But in general, I think of the infertility evaluation as looking at eggs and ovulation, the uterus and the fallopian tubes, and then looking for sperm in the partner. 
So I think that, again, regular periods and particularly regular periods with a woman who tracks her ovulation with an app or with ovulation predictor kits is a very good indication that she is ovulating. So if you're not ovulating, then looking for polycystic ovarian syndrome by looking at hormonal tests, other problems with ovulation, such as thyroid disease or hyperprolactinemia are associated with ovulatory dysfunction. And rarely diminished ovarian reserve in a young woman as a cause for irregular cycles. Although as women get into their late 30s and 40s, that's a more common cause. So I think looking at the menstrual cycle any home testing that the woman is doing and hormones tends to look at uh, the ovulatory function. I think the simple test for the uterus and the fallopian tubes is to start with the pelvic ultrasound. It does give you a good view of the uterus and it doesn't eliminate the possibility of tubal problems, but at least it would tell you if you have a hydrosalpinx or a large and damaged fallopian tube. I think if the woman has risk factors for tubal problems, then again, primary care physicians often order a hysterosalpingogram, uh, which involves putting dye through the fallopian tubes and looking with fluoroscopy. I think one of the big steps forward that we've had in the last year or two is that now there's a good ultrasound-based test that can look at uh, fallopian tube patency. And that's usually more comfortable for women and doesn't involve x-ray exposure. So more and more women are able to take advantage of an ultrasound-based tubal patency test. Are there other more sophisticated tests that uh, an endocrinologist or a infertility specialist might perform then? Oh, clearly. That again, if uh, ovulation is a problem that trying to determine if what you're seeing is diminished ovarian reserve or what is usually age-related decrease in the egg supply is important. And that can be done with a variety of hormonal tests or a specialized ultrasound called an antrophollicle count. If you're focusing in on the uterus and looking for more rare problems like intrauterine adhesions or endometrial polyps than a saline infusion sonogram where you put saline inside the uterus and expand the cavity to look for things that are normally not visualized on an ultrasound can be important. And again, there are a variety of rare things that endocrinologists can look at, but I think looking at eggs and ovulation and the uterus and the fallopian tubes are kind of the uh, basis of a basic infertility evaluation. And that's clearly an appropriate primary care test. Now, I know this depends on the type or the cause of the infertility, but for the more common types, what have you found are the most successful treatments that ends up with a pregnancy and successful delivery? In general, the use of medications to try to induce or augment ovulation can be useful. And uh, sometimes because it involves oral medications, it's relatively simple 
and cost-effective that uh, sometimes using intrauterine insemination can be useful to uh, get the sperm into the uterus at the right time if counts are low. But really, our most successful treatment is in vitro fertilization. In vitro fertilization uses medications to try to recruit multiple eggs at the same time and removes the eggs from the body in a procedure called an uh, egg retrieval, combines it with sperm, and then watches the embryo development take place outside the body so that, first of all, the best embryo can be selected to put back in the uterus. And you can minimize the risk of multiple gestations because extra embryos can be frozen for the future. There's also a whole set of things that go along with in vitro fertilization that can help various populations. Clearly, the use of donor eggs and donor sperm can be helpful with couples that need uh, one of these uh, sources of gametes. And increasingly now couples are being identified as having genetic problems even prior to their attempts at fertility through serum tests like expanded carrier screening. So sometimes in vitro fertilization these days is used not for infertility, but to prevent genetic disease where couples say may both be carriers of cystic fibrosis mutations and testing the embryos can be a good treatment for that kind of couple. Yeah, I had a few questions about in vitro fertilization. You've answered a couple of them there, but I still have a couple more. What are the costs of a procedure like that? For most couples, the cost of in vitro fertilization is substantial. It's usually in the range of ten dollars to $20,000, but it varies a great deal depending on the amount of medication that you need and uh, whether or not you choose to do associated genetic testing. So it is expensive, and unfortunately, uh, many insurers don't cover the costs of infertility treatment. There are some states where there is legislation that mandates that the treatment of infertility be covered just as diabetes care or hypertension care is, but that's a pretty rare situation. Mm -hmm. And then one more question on the in vitro fertilization. What about the risk of multiple births? How often does that occur? That has improved substantially in the last couple of years. So as we've been better able to culture embryos, we've been able to get to a very high success rate with single embryo transfer. Uh, so that, uh, again, in the past when we were only able to culture embryos for two or three days outside the body, you would often have to put two or more embryos back in the uterus to get a good pregnancy rate. But now that we're able to culture embryos for five to seven days in the lab to create a blastocyst, that placing a blastocyst in the uterus with an embryo transfer gives a very high success rate and a very low risk of multiple pregnancies. So uh, most high order multiples, meaning triplets or more mm -hmm. these days come from using medications to induce ovulation, but letting fertilization take place in the body. Last question, patient who comes in or a couple who comes in for an infertility evaluation, 
across the board, how often is a cause found and a successful treatment where they end up with a uh, successful pregnancy? I would say in about half to two thirds of cases, we're able to identify a cause and the success rate is good. But I think the problem is that the success rate depends often on treatment and not all couples either have access to treatment because of financial concerns, or there are people who have ethical concerns about some of the treatments. For example, some couples will not feel comfortable with in vitro fertilization. I think one of the things that it's always worth asking is whether or not there are ways to do in vitro fertilization that can make it acceptable to couples. So sometimes we're able to do things like limited insemination. So if, for example, we retrieve 12 eggs from a woman, but she and her partner do not feel comfortable creating embryos that they may not use, we may be able to create a small number of embryos for them to use and freeze the extra eggs so that uh, that ethical concern is avoided. There are also some new equipment that, for example, allow a device to be placed in the woman's vagina to uh, incubate the embryos so that, again, for couples whose concerns are that they don't want fertilization taking place outside the body, the eggs and the sperm can be placed in a container that can then be placed back in the body to uh, get around some of those concerns that would like to be able to help as many couples as we can. And fertility medicine is clearly not a one-size-fits-all problem. So as in most areas of medicine, there have been some major scientific improvements in the management and evaluation of infertility. It's just Amazing to hear uh, some of these things you're discussing. Finally, Abby, can you give about maybe two or three key points which uh, summarizes our discussion on infertility in females? So I think the first thing is that infertility in women increases with increasing age. So if you're ever thinking about, should I think about starting to try for pregnancy now or should I wait a year? Uh, sooner is often better. I think that the second major point is that irregular periods tend to be associated with increased fertility risk. So if you know you have irregular periods, then uh, seeking care may be uh, appropriate. And the third point is that infertility is not just a, a woman's problem, that there are male factors as well. And that if you have a male partner, that he should be undergoing evaluation at the same time you are. Well, we've been discussing infertility in females with Dr. Elizabeth Stewart from the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility in the Department of OBGYN at the Mayo Clinic. Ebby, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for opening up the conversation. It was wonderful. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music